Hi, this is Andrew, and this is Keynote, the daily now.tv chat show with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers. Hello, everybody. It is May the 6th, 2022. Uh, earlier this morning, it's a Friday, earlier this morning, did an interesting show with the British journalist Rowan Hooper. How to save the world for just a trillion dollars. We certainly need to save the world. In America in particular, uh, we need to save ourselves from tearing ourselves apart over this hugely divisive and poisonous debate about abortion, about whether or not we should end the lives of quote-unquote babies before they're born. Lots of pieces on the New York Times today, the paper of record, uh, according to one columnist, the death of Roe, at least figuratively, is going to tear America apart. Lots of doctors as well writing about performing second trimester abortions. It's becoming all too technical and nasty here. So I was curious, uh, our, our guest today is a population expert from Norway, who teaches actually at Columbia University in New York City. And he has a pretty controversial new book out. It's just out. It's called Decline and Prosper, Changing Global Birth Rates and the Advantages of Fewer Children. Certainly, uh, I think the uh, the anti-abortion crowd are not going to be thrilled with this new book. His name is Vega Skerbeck, and uh, he's joining us from Norway today. Vega um, if you had a, a billion dollars, would you spend it on trying to bring down global birth rates? Is that one way we might use to save the world? Well, Andrew, I think the first thing I would do is probably to spend uh, quite a bit of it on uh, on uh, extending educational uh, uh, length, increasing um, school attainment in uh, countries all over the world, uh, which is probably one of the least controversial and most effective ways of, of um, um, aligning uh, birth rates with the long-term system. That's a very Norwegian solution, very civilized. Unfortunately, though, Vega, not everywhere can be, um, can be Norway. Uh, we, we used to talk about Denmark being the future, but uh, perhaps Norway is the future of Denmark. Uh, Norway is the most civilized country, for better or worse, in the world. How has Norway addressed birth rates, uh, particularly when it comes to education? Is it in some ways a model? Do you do things better in Norway than perhaps in the United States and other countries in the world? Well, Norway is uh, different from most countries in the world because of, uh, for many reasons, but because of its, uh, its uh, very high wealth, uh, its uh, um long history of having uh, high levels of gender equality of having high levels of education high levels of female labor force participation contraceptive uh, availability and use but norway is also a um uh, but norway is a role model for for um countries all over the world i'm not so sure about uh in some ways uh, there are things we could probably learn from some from parts of the norwegian system so sure there there are uh, elements of the norwegian policies and norwegian um uh, national decisions and societal development, which might be uh, of, uh, of relevance for also other parts of the world, for sure. Let's go back to your book, um, Decline and Prosper, Changing Global Birth Rates and Advantages of Fewer Children. As I said, and, and you know this as well as I do, there's a huge debate now in the United States 
about abortion. Uh, some progressive publications are warning that contraception is now going to come under fire. That's a, a headline from uh, The Guardian, left-leaning English newspaper. Um, meanwhile, Mother Jones, another left-leaning magazine in the United States, is suggesting that the anti-abortions movement next target is birth control. In terms of your argument for changing global birth rates and the advantages of, of fewer children, is that mostly accomplished through more contraception? After all, I, I assume you're not saying we should have less sex. Certainly not. Um, I think uh, the... Um, well, first of all, there's there's many, many, many reasons why fertility levels are declining. Um, increasing education, uh, better and more effective contraceptives are key causes of, of, uh, of uh, decline, declining fertility rates. Um, I do say that fertility, lower fertility could be a good development. Too low fertility could be a major challenge. So I don't uh, say uh, advocate that fertility should drop to to uh, too low levels, but I do believe that uh, um, many, much of the development we see in the world today, with uh, with a global convergence towards lower levels of uh, fertility in nations, um, both in Asia and Europe, in in uh, North America, and increasingly in other parts of the world, including Latin America and and, and um, uh, many other countries that previously had very high fertility. Uh, are, um, are likely caused by a mix of, uh, of changing norms, better contraceptives, more uh, greater female labor force participation, uh, but also changes in, in what is ideal, what is the ideal family size, how many children would we like to have. And right, you just came out, um, you're one of the authors of a new study from Colombia, suggesting, yeah. and this will be a surprise to some of our viewers, that uh, Asia and Africa have similar aging burdens as the West. Um, it's got reported today in Medical Express. So really what you're suggesting or what you're finding and your research team at Columbia is finding is that population patterns in the West and in Asia and in Africa aren't substantially different. Is that fair, Vega? What is fair to say is that the world is aging, um, is much more similar in terms of aging if you account for health. That is, even if you have older populations in many countries in 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 uh, in the West, demographically older, you also have much better health because there has been greater investments in health. Um, and that has not been the case in many parts of the world. So the age at which you achieve a certain health level uh, differs tremendously. It differs by more than 30 years across countries. Uh, you have the same uh, level of health in the mid-70s in Japan as you have in, in your mid-40s in, in Papua New Guinea, uh, which means that some of the countries we think of as old are actually relatively younger than uh, than um, um, uh, what the case would be if you only would look at pure demography. So if you count for health, you find that uh, the differences between the West and Africa, say, or Latin America or uh, much of Asia is, is not that large. Um, the um, uh, dependency burdens are quite similar. And this is something we're now able to do because of new uh, and better uh, and harmonized health data, which allows us to compare countries by uh, and, and uh, countries um, aging, uh, accounting for health. Vega, do you have any kids of your own? I do have two kids, yes. You have two. Um, some people might find your subtitle um, of your new book, uh, the advantages of fewer children rather chilling. We live in a culture, particularly in the United States, with a, a 
a kind of a cult of the child, although that's often not reflected in the way we treat our children. Mm-hmm. But isn't having children uh, the essence of, of what it means to be human? It's where many of us, I would include myself here as a parent, get our most meaning and joy. What are the advantages of, of, of fewer children? Well, first of all, there's um, um, it's not necessarily about uh, parenthood versus non-parenthood. We have... Um, um, there can be changes in, in uh, the size of families, which um, can be something people want, first of all. Many people prefer, many parts of the world, people prefer to have fewer children than they actually end up having. Many children are um, unintended, and uh, the parents might not have uh, sufficient resources to invest enough in each child. So this can be a major challenge. I also think it's important to note that um, the, the norms have changed. There are pro- substantial proportions uh, of the population that, prefer to be childless. Um, for example, there's a survey suggesting that almost one in five Dutch men prefer childlessness. Uh, so there's substantial uh, Dutch men. Dutch yeah, well, maybe Dutch men have a problem, though. Like, maybe they're, <laughs> well, they're missing something. I mean, wh- why do they prefer that? What do they prefer to do? Go to the, the pub and watch football? Well, that I don't know. Uh, they have uh, probably different um, uh, preferences. And... and uh, that's the whole what do Dutch women say? Do they agree with Dutch men on this? Not as much, but there's a substantial share among women um, in um, different countries as well that prefer to be childless. And this is important to take into account that uh, the decline in fertility partly reflects individual preferences, individual choices, what people want. And, and if you're able to attain what we want, uh, that is probably a positive development. We've done a number of shows, Vega, on demography. You're essentially a demographer. Uh, we did one earlier this year with Jennifer Skuba, the author of Eight Billion and Counting, suggesting that demography isn't destiny. And we did one a couple of years ago with the British demographer, Paul Morland, suggesting from his new book, uh, Human Tide, that demography is destiny. What's your position here? Is that a, a meaningful phrase? And is it helpful in making sense of global birth rates? Well, I do not believe demography is destiny. I think you can, uh, like I mentioned earlier, with the health issues, and uh, even if you experience demographic aging, if you invest enough in people, if you encourage people um, to to um, live healthier lifestyles, if you incentivize for longer lives uh, with good functioning, um, increase investments in, in health and education, you can uh, keep health and productivity and functional status going to much higher ages. So demography is not destiny, is my stance. And I think um, this is support, supported quite well by the available evidence, especially nowadays when you have much better data on, on health and time trends in health and also uh, are able to compare health and functioning across countries. Demography used to be a much more sort of a polemical, a much more sensitive issue. I think in the 19th century, you had uh, Thomas Malthus with his Malthusian theories about overpopulation. Um, in terms of reasons for the advantages of fewer children and 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 and, and uh, challenging global birth rates, bringing them down, is the real argument one of not just human happiness, uh, Vega, but the environment. In Rowan Hooper's How to Save the World for Just a Trillion Dollars, most of his focus is on the environment. Is it simply that our planet is too small for the number of people on it and we need to reduce that if we're to save the forests, save the air? Mm-hmm. 
So first of all, population is, uh, again, demography is not destiny. The more important than population size is what people do, uh, how much they cons consume, uh, what the levels of greenhouse gas emissions are, uh, what the level of resource use is. However, the uh, population numbers still do matter. Uh, and we have seen tremendous population growth in the past. We have uh, um, uh, in many parts of the world. Um, and even if uh, population growth is about to level off in, in many countries or is leveling off, or in some countries there, we have already seen stabilization or even uh, slight declines there. Um, it's, it's still uh, a major issue. Uh, high fertility is, uh, is a key concern in many countries of the world. And uh, um, not only individuals in these countries, uh, large proportions prefer to have smaller families, but also governments state that this is a major challenge for their development, that their fertility levels are too high. And they're looking for ways to, to decrease fertility, such as in Nigeria now, where they have new policies being introduced on this issue. Uh, Vega, as you know better than I do, this is a, a sensitive subject. The idea of fewer children can really upset some people. Is there a, does your, your team, when it comes to making this argument about having fewer children, do they have a, if you like, a PR, a marketing problem? Bill Gates has got himself into trouble on this. Uh, he's a big supporter of controlling population. He's one investor, for example, in his foundation, in the World Population Foundation. Prince Charles and his son, Prince William, have also got themselves into trouble last year. Prince William got himself into trouble on African population. Is, is the issue of having fewer kids a, a kind of a conceit, if you like, of, of upper class, wealthy white men like Prince William, like Bill Gates, like Prince Charles, perhaps even like yourself? Mm -hmm. No, I think, uh, well, I'm, uh, I wouldn't describe myself as upper class, uh, but I think the... Well, you the, teach at uh, Columbia, you're pretty privileged. You're not typical. Uh, well, I, I, <laughs> I do think that the, 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 what's wrong in the debate is basically the, um, uh, the whole um, uh, notion that this, how should you address the issue? I think the best way to address the issue is to, to listen to what people say in different countries, what governments say, what the average person say. And, and uh, also see what's possible, what do they want? And they do want more education, they do want better living standards, they do want environmental sustainability. Um, certainly there's an, uh, a preference for more gender equality, for more uh, less congestion and more, more um, um, uh, greater living standards. And I think this is something that um, uh, one can address uh, through, for example, policies addressed that rise, uh, raising school levels, uh, which are fairly uncontroversial and which also tend to be related to more long-term sustainable um, um, uh, fertility levels. Uh, individuals with touch education uh, around the world tend to have much more, um, tend to have fertility levels much closer to replacement levels than, um, than um, uh, individuals with, with lower levels of education. And increasing schooling levels is, is typically not seen as a very controversial... Vega, what, what should be taught in schools about um, having children? What would you like to teach teenagers <laughs> and younger kids, which they're currently not learning? What would be the, the educational model? What's missing? I think you're asking the wrong question. I think you shouldn't look so much at what they teach. Uh, I think it's more important that people do go to school. That is the most important issue, that they spend um, many years in school. Uh, until they are 18 at least, and, and they do have uh, 
have broad education. I think you learn many things at school directly or indirectly. Uh, of course, there should be some basic insights in uh, biology, contraceptive use, sexual education, and so forth. But but it should not be taught in a way that upsets um, um, too many uh, conservative groups. I don't think this is a good way to go about it. I think you should to design school uh, schooling and school curriculums in a way that encompasses as many uh, individuals as possible, uh, and and uh, try to be. Um, um, especially when you address these issues in poorer countries around the world, where um, teaching many of these issues can be highly controversial and difficult, especially in highly religious countries. So are you saying that the research suggests that if the kids, and I assume this is both men and women, if they go to school, they're less likely to have many children? Is that fair? Yep. They're less likely to have unwanted pregnancies, less likely to have... um, early teenage pregnancies, uh, which typically are unwanted. Uh, the majority of teenage pregnancies, say, in the US are, are unwanted. Some surveys suggest that uh, uh, around four and fifths, or four fifths of teenage pregnancies are unwanted. It's better to wait. It's also better to have, um, um, and if you do go in school, you also typically change your fertility preferences. You, you might end up having children um, at later ages, also when you're better prepared, when you are, have more resources and are more capable of taking care of your children. What about the difference between you sort of half joked earlier about Dutch men, uh, and I brought up Dutch women? What about the difference between men and women? Um, is there are there substantial differences when it comes to wanting to have children? And should should we be listening to men? I mean, after all, it's the women who have the kids, and it's the women for whom the, the burden of bringing kids up generally falls. So who cares what men think? Mm-hmm. Well. Uh, I think you should spend much more time thinking about. Um, I come from a field um, uh, where um, the the focus has, is actually disproportionately on the women. Uh, there's much more focus on, on, especially in the field of fertility. The vast majority of studies do focus on uh, on the um, on women, and often uh, studies with good data on men are are lacking or uh, much fewer in numbers. Um, so certainly we should focus also on what men um, feel and think, and what their fertility ideals and preferences are. I think much more, um, much more focus should be given to this um, in the time ahead, and I also think that uh, there's it's important to to note that there, there are differences. Yes, there are differences in fertility ideals. Women in many Western countries, at least richer countries, um, um, and also East Asian countries, we find that um, uh, there's a higher uh, proportion of women who prefer to be uh, parents to become mothers uh, than men. Uh, and say in Norway, you have. Uh, um, you also see this in fertility behavior, where in Norway, 31% of men aged 40 are now childless, uh, while the situation for women is 16%. So it's about twice as many men who are childless than uh, the share among women. I don't know the numbers of this, but I'm guessing that in the US in particular on this abor- on the abortion debate, uh, men tend to be much more supportive, white men in particular, of the Republican Party and much of the more radical agenda within that libertarian uh, agenda within uh, pro-birth agenda within the Republican Party. Are you finding that, that around the world, not just in the US, the people who, if you like, fetishize babies and birth uh, tend to be more male than female, or is that unfair? I think it's, uh, the situation is more complicated. There, it's, um, again, 
women in many countries, uh, especially in Western countries, prefer more children than men uh, on average and uh, are more likely to prefer to become parents. I also think that uh, the, the way forward is to probably to change, uh, one has to change one's uh, gender roles and gender views. Uh, um, there's a lot of conservatism also among women. Say in Norway, there's, uh, there's one survey suggesting that the very high proportion uh, of women prefer the men to be um, uh, the main breadwinner in households today. So even in uh, the con country in the world with the highest level of female labor force participation, the um, uh, one service suggests that seven out of 10 women prefer the man to be the main breadwinner. So there is a lot of conservatism from both sexes, from both genders. And I think it's important to note that uh, this, uh, uh, when bo both sexes have to adjust to, to um, um, the situation we are facing now, where, where men are no longer necessarily the, the highest earner. Uh, education levels might uh, favor women increasingly um, compared to men. And it's, uh, it's important to, to adjust one's preferences if one wants to uh, form a family. And um, um, yeah, given the social developments that you're seeing. Uh, your, your subtitle of, of, of your new book, Decline and Prosper, Vega, is um, Changing Global Birth Rates and the Advantages of Fewer Children. I wonder if we could change that subtitle and say, Changing Global Birth Rates and the Advantages of Fewer Old People. Isn't the problem that it's not so much that we're having too many children, it's just that these old people, these relics are hanging around and technology seems to be enabling that uh, on my conversation with Ryan Hooper uh, on saving the world. He talked about the Chan Zuckerberg initiative to cure all diseases by uh, 2100, meaning that I guess old people would live forever. Lots of tech people are suggesting this. I had a, a man appropriately named Sergey Young on the show recently talking about the science and ethics of living to 100. He has a new book out, The Science and Technology of Growing Young. Should we be worrying then not so much about too many children, but too many old people and somehow figuring out how to get rid of them? Uh, definitely not. We should uh, figure out how they can be um, be most uh, socially and, and um, economically engaged and, and productive as long as possible. Uh, I also think that, uh, as I mentioned earlier, the, the issue with the aging populations is, is uh, should be solved through more investments and more encouragements and more incentives for longer working lives, for more um, active participation in societies. And this is something that can be achieved, has been achieved in some countries to a great extent and not in many other countries. And I think this is... Uh, this is an issue we should increasingly address now that we, we certainly know that uh, demographic aging is inevitable. There is no country on earth that is not uh, gonna, going to experience population aging. But it's a matter of whether you, whether you manage this transition well or if you manage it poorly. And I think uh, many countries will manage it very poorly, unfortunately, because they do not uh, uh, invest and adjust to societies enough for, for um, inevitable population aging. Are there politicians or political parties that you think have grasped this challenge better than others? Know. Are there models of, of, of figures who, who you think, are, you know, I brought up Prince Charles, he's not really a politician, or Bill Gates, who's a, a philanthropist. But um, I, I'm not sure. In, in Norway, for example, is this an issue of public debate? It certainly isn't in the United States, aside from the abortion issue, which mm. is only tangentially, I think, connected with this. Mm. Well, I think um, 
Uh, certainly not enough. And when it's addressed, it's typically addressed uh, in silos. So people addressing fertility are not talking about population aging sufficiently and vice versa. Uh, it's not enough uh, comprehensive in, uh, interdisciplinary approaches to, to address these issues. And I think um, um, one should also note that the, 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 uh, these developments have been going on for a very long time. Population aging has been known to uh, occur for um, more than a century, a century, and and we still haven't planned well enough. We still haven't uh, figured out how to adjust our societies um, uh, sufficiently to deal with aging populations. So I think this uh, this is something um, which is uh, which we should have done a long time ago, and and um, um, simply late in dealing with them. Uh, this situation better late than never, though, Vega. What about? The fear of dystopians, like we had Margaret Atwood, a great Canadian writer on the show last year, talking to me about democracy, citizenship, and above all else, dystopian fiction. She is a master of that, particularly her book, The Handmaid's Tale, which imagines a future in which fecundity is fetishized. Uh, when she wrote it, I think in, I think it was in the 80s, it seemed science fictional. Today, it seems quite real. Is the, the world of The Handmaid's Tale, something that we should take seriously in which birth is, is fetishized? Well, I think, um, of course, birth is uh, having children is or not having children is one of the most important decisions any uh, human being would make. Uh, and I think the uh, perhaps the topic has become increasingly important as you see fertility rates decline uh, many demographers thought fertility rates would, would level out at around two children per women um, it did not happen fertility rates kept on declining in many countries um, global fertility fell from five to um, to uh, 2.2 approximately today uh, it's been more than half since since 1950s in richer countries such as Norway global fertility uh, national fertility has also declined and, and roughly halved from three to around 1.5 uh, children using period measures of fertility um, of the same uh, uh, time period. So, so we've seen much fewer children and therefore maybe an increased um, uh, emphasis on, on childbearing and uh, a greater um, understanding that many people are not able to realize the fertility um, uh, preferences. Many people end up not having the children they want and, and um, um, and also a great uh, uh, fear. What will happen when large proportions of the population end up uh, with um, um, not having their own, uh, not having children? And one has to try to adjust societies to to deal with this. See, can we can we somehow uh, is this wanted or not? Can we increase their well-being in the case they do not have uh, children? Can we? How can we deal with the, with the economic um, security issues with the pension is issues with the retirement reforms and so forth in the um in the face of this um, um demographic and economic changes finally vega what happens if we get this wrong what happens if we don't change global birth rates what happens if we don't have fewer children paint me a dystopian future a world of too many people too many children it's very difficult to say when um whether and when uh, there are too many people um i do think uh, i do think there has been too many uh, dystopian books and too many dystopian theories on what's going to happen in the world in terms of fertility change uh, many um, many books and many authors many of them written by non-demographers um, are 
fearing um, the situation where fertility drops in some countries. I think one should rather uh, emphasize the positive aspects to a much greater extent, and one should also see that uh, when um, that what we're currently seeing the, the decline in fertility when it's extending to more and more countries, this can be a positive development which will have um, many many important uh, significant. Uh, positive aspects uh, of uh, for social and ecological and and um, uh, uh, economic development, which we probably wouldn't have seen to the same extent as uh, uh, without this situation. And just to one one example is that today, um, after the last round of uh, censuses, um, post-corona, we, we, we have a situation where the 15 largest economies of the world, representing roughly four-fifths of the global GDP, um, all have below replacement fertility. So it's not uh, necessarily implying that one uh, will uh, experience less uh, political economic power or, or um, um, decline. Well, your book, Decline and Prosper, Changing Global Birth Rates, The Advantages of Fewer Children, has a very controversial title, particularly subtitle, but you aren't too controversial, very reasonable in that best Norwegian tradition. Congratulations on the new book, Vega. Uh, what else should people be reading? Uh, what are you reading in early May 2022? Any other book suggestions or other reading suggestions? Yeah, I do have. Um, well, I, I read a lot, actually. I I, um, I have to read the physical books and I read the, um, uh, quite a bit also. Uh, fiction, but and as well as nonfiction. Um, and one one book which I uh, which is not new it came out in 1981. Um, it was uh, by Koplevin Böll, uh, written by a former German and a former Soviet soldier. Why did they shoot shoot at each other? Uh, where they discussed um, uh, uh, why on earth did they 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 uh, fight each other basically, and what were the consequences of that? Um, and and I think it's a very Certainly a very relevant book now, given the current Ukrainian war. Definitely. It's a um, book I haven't heard of. Sounds very interesting. C could you just remind us of the author again? So it's uh, Leo Kopolev and Heinrich Böll. Okay, good. Well, thank you, Vigard. Uh, author, as I said, of a new book, Decline and Prosper, Changing Global Birth Rates and the Advantages of Fewer Children. Demography isn't destiny, according to you. Um, who runs the world, though, Vigard, in early in the first week of May 2022. Mm -hmm. Who's in charge these days? I don't know. Um, I don't have uh, probably an original answer to that. I would say the one who will run the world in the world will be the those who manage to to accomplish uh, basically what we've been discussing now in terms of uh, um, uh, dealing with the demographic transition effectively and of, um, ending up in a situation where you are have a demographically older population but a well-functioning one we cope well with relatively low fertility levels with high levels of childlessness but also one which functions socially economically and and health wise well